Welcome to <coughs> the presentation entitled Someone's got a program. <laughs> Thank you. Encounter at Sinai. <laughs> it helps, it helps. All right. Often this presentation has been entitled Bearers of the Torch. Imagine you're at the Olympics and you have a relay race. What is the, if you had to identify one runner as more important than the other, which one would you say is the most important runner in a relay race? The last one. Why? He's the one who passes the flame or the item onto the, to finish the finishing line. So in a sudden sense, he winning the race justifies all the efforts of those that came before him. So in the title, Bearers of the Torch, what we're really talking about is carrying the flame of the Torah, of clarity, from generation to the next generation, till the end of time. But the question I'm going to ask you is, what is the genesis of this relay race, of this Bearers of the Torch? Where did it begin? What is the starting point? If you had to identify one event in the history of not just the Jewish people, in the history of the world, as the greatest claim ever made, the greatest event in history ever to happen, which event in history would you identify, would you select? Encounter at Sinai. <laughs> Why could one argue this is the most important event in the history of the world? The greatest claim ever made. Because essentially we're saying that three million Jews stood at Sinai and heard the almighty, all-powerful God speak to them. Now let's ask ourselves a, a fair question. If you're going to start a religion, ma'am, not you personally, but if you know someone who wants to start a religion, what makes more sense? To choose an inferior claim or a superior claim? Which would you go for? Superior. So if you're going to start a religion, what sounds much more compelling? To say that God spoke to you personally last night, and now you want to somehow inform and influence as many people as you possibly can, that God chose you to be the bearer of clarity to the world, to give his instructions to mankind, that's argument number one. God spoke to me, personal revelation. Scenario number two, God spoke to me last night in front of thousands of people and told me I'm his chosen prophet to transmit his instructions to mankind. If you're going to choose one of those two arguments to start a religion, which is the more compelling argument? The second one. Why is the second one superior to the first argument? You've got witnesses. What's the power of witnesses? What does that mean? To corroborate your story. Testimony. I'm not the only one who experienced God speaking to me. You heard him speak to me. That's a much better... No, that's a superior claim. So if you know someone who's going to start a religion, surely if you've got those options, which would you go for? The better argument, the more compelling claim. So let's ask ourselves, according to Jewish history, 
our encounter at Sinai, when we stood at Mount Sinai, 3,313 years ago, six months, one, six months and uh, three weeks today, this morning, 12, 13, 13, 12 hours and 12 hours, 3,313 years ago, six months, three weeks and 12 hours ago, we stood at Sinai. That's our claim. How many religions have surfaced on the map of history since 3,313 years, six months and three weeks and 12 hours? How many? A lot. Maybe thousands. Some of them are major religions. Now let's ask the obvious question. If you're going to start a religion, then why don't you go for the superior claim? Say that God spoke to you in front of many people. Witnesses. Let's look at this for a moment. How do you know any event in history to be factual? What's it based upon? What's the evidence that any event in history is factual? And not just speculation or rumor. Evidence. And what's the highest level of evidence in any court of law internationally throughout history? Witnesses. You want what type of witnesses? Eyewitnesses. First-hand eyewitnesses who were there, who experienced the event. And based on that, you're going to say, this took place, and they're going to pass on that information. I mean, how many of you have ever celebrated Thanksgiving Day? Yeah, okay, fair enough. Now, do you believe, or do you know, that it happened this year? You know, how do you know, man? Your name is? You were there. You witnesses, you were there. Now, your name is, sorry? Miriam. Miriam, do you believe, or do you know, that... There was Thanksgiving last year. Do you believe or do you know that it was celebrated last year? You know that because you were there. And um, I'm not going to go every single year, but uh, do you believe or do you know that it happened two years ago? Three years ago? Ten years ago? So eventually we're going to come to a point where you weren't born yet, and I'll ask you, do you believe or do you know? And what will you say? You believe because, how do you know? What? what you weren't there, but what, what makes you believe it really was celebrated? It was every other year. It was every other year, and who celebrated it before you were born? Your parents. And your parents told you that they were there. And they would then give testimony to you as to their experience. And if I asked them, how far back would I go? You don't have to tell me their age. But eventually I would get back to their parents. And how far back would we actually go? Hopefully to the original event. How do you know any event in history to be factual? So let's ask ourselves, look, there are a lot of religions out there. Did they at least go for the superior claim? You've got Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, the two major religions besides Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Did they choose the superior claim? How many witnesses were there when Jesus came out of the grave? How many? Well, according to the New Testament, there are seven different versions as to what really took place. According to one account, there were three people who saw Jesus being buried, and then afterwards saw the grave empty. After the burial. Conclusion, he came back. One possibility. Another account claims that they saw him walking in his shroud. They saw the back of Jesus in his shrouds after he was buried. Conclusion came back. Now let me ask you, if you were amongst the Judeo-Christians, I call them that deliberately because amongst scholars that's what the original Christians were known as. They were no Christians, they were all Jews. In fact, Jesus was a Jew, 
But don't tell them that. <laughs> no, seriously. They were Judeo-Christians who practiced Judaism and followed this person as being their teacher. And imagine you were there. Imagine you were there. Writing the account of Jesus coming out of the grave. Knowing that you have the possibility of saying it was a personal revelation where he came to three people. There was no specific dialogue or encounter. But if you had to write through your own imagination and you wanted to make the account as compelling as possible, what would you write? You might write something like this. We were standing at the gravesite and there were thousands of us saying psalms, which is usually what people do at, at gravesites. It wouldn't be strange to have written such an account. And we were there reciting psalms and in the middle of the recital, the ground began to tremble. The grave opened up and Jesus came out. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back. Now, let, I don't mean it comically. I'm just saying, if you, if you were there, if you were one of those thousands standing there, what would you say? Wow! That's amazing! And you go and tell your friends, he was buried, he was dead, and he came back. Why don't you write that account? It's much more compelling than saying that after he was already buried, someone saw his back or saw the grave empty but didn't see him. Question. In Islam, how many people were there when Muhammad went behind the mountain in a chariot of fire to get the instructions from God that he's the chosen prophet for all time? No witnesses. But if you're going to make a claim that God spoke to you, why don't you have God speak to you in front of witnesses and it will corroborate, it will provide evidence that's the only evidence in a court of law throughout history to know if something's factual or not. Otherwise, what you're essentially asking me to do is believe on blind faith. I believe in your account, but there's no evidence from other witnesses who say they experienced what you experienced. I'll give you an example. Imagine, imagine a king. And he has twin sons, two princes. And the king dies, and he does not leave instructions to his two sons which one is going to be the king after him. So the princes are vying, campaigning against each other, bad-mouthing, whatever they're, do, they're doing to get the position. And suddenly one of them comes up with a brilliant idea. And he calls together all the members of the royal cabinet, the royal court, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I have very solemn news to share with you. Last night, in my dream, my father, the king, came to me, and he said, I'm to be the next king. Now, you know I'll tell you what, I'll be that prince, you be the members of the royal court. Answer me. How do you prove to me, prove to me, that I did not experience my father speaking to me in my dream, telling me that I'm the next king? Can you prove it? You can't prove me wrong, because it wasn't your experience. So what are you going to answer me? You can't prove me wrong. So you know what you answer? Listen, dear prince, we're very happy for you. You don't have to empathize, you're in America, you understand. This is a wonderful experience you had, and you're very healing, I'm very happy for you. But let us understand something, dear prince. If you want us, the members of your father's royal court, to accept you as the new prince, whose dream should he be coming in? Should he be coming in your dream, not mine. 
You should be witnessing the king say, I'm the next prince. Oh, that's the difference between every other religion and Judaism. No one dared make the claim, no other religion dared make the claim that God spoke to them en masse in front of thousands or millions of witnesses. Joe Smith, who started the Mormons, how many people were there when he was on top of a New Hampshire mountain? And he gets the golden tablets. He comes down, he tells his parents and his family all about them, say, really, where are these tablets? Oh my gosh. He lost them. No, seriously speaking, why don't you just say, God spoke to you in front of the rest of your family or other members? Why can't you even lie? At least lie. At least tell a lie. Why didn't they have the imagination to at least lie? Because you can't lie about something of this magnitude because you can verify it with the witnesses. So you'd have to have witnesses in order just to lie. Because you say, oh really, is that what happened? Let me check it out with the people that you claim to have been there. Example. Let's say I tell you that Thursday night I was in Madison Square Garden. It was the Knicks against the Lakers. Great game. And you know what? In the middle of the game, the roof miraculously opened up in front of 20,000 people and a giant hand came down and pointed at me and said, you are my chosen prophet to give my instructions to mankind. Now, do you believe me? Why not? Why not? It wasn't in the post the next day. That's right. How come they're not talking about it on CBS? How come I didn't see it in the New York Times? None of my friends who I called in Manhattan know anything about what you're talking about. Where are the witnesses? You can't lie about something of this magnitude because you need the witnesses to be real in order to verify it. You couldn't say this unless it happened. But it doesn't stop there. Because you learned this morning, part of the criteria of Jewish prophecy is it has to be irrational. Strange. Why does it have to be irrational? Because if it's irrational, you say something that is completely wacky, so, it's, it, so many odds have to come together for it to be true, that if it does come true, it points fingers to control of the future. And look at the words of Moses. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, when he tells the Jewish people the following, Ki sha'al na. What does sha'al mean? No, it doesn't mean ask, it means ask. They pay me to speak this way. I'm paid for this accent. What does na mean? What does na mean? Please. Ki sha'al na. Says Moses, please ask. What I'm about to tell you, don't take on faith. Don't take on blind faith. Don't tell, don't take it and believe it because I'm telling you and because of my credibility. No! I don't care where you are in history studying the Bible. When you get to Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 32, I want you to please ask the following question. When you ask, about the days that came before you. From the day man was created by the Almighty on earth. The first day. And from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe, 
I want you to ask the following question. Was there ever any event as great as this? Was there ever anything as great as this? Or did you hear anyone else make the claim of anything as great as this? And what is the this? Hashama Amkalelukim, that a nation heard the voice of the Almighty, Midabe Metoicha Esh, speaking from the midst of the fire, Kashe Shamata, like you heard, Vayichi, and you survived, you lived through the experience. Moses is saying, I want you to please ask, I don't care when you're reading this, a year after I wrote the Bible, a hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand, three thousand, ask the question, was there ever another Sinai? Was there ever another encounter between an almighty God speaking to an entire nation? What's the obvious risk in prophecy? What's the obvious risk in saying this will never happen again? If it happens again, what does that say about the prophet? It's a liar. And if he's saying in the name of a divine book, what do you say about the book? Garbage. And what do you say about the author? It's not true. A lot on the line, Moses. And what does he say? I want you to please ask the question, did it ever happen again? Or, Hanishma Kamohu, did you hear anyone else tell you it happened to them? Even if they're lying. Hey, Moses, how do you control the future? How can you ensure that no one's even going to lie about it? Even though we explained the logic that you couldn't even lie about this unless it happened because the witnesses would be there for you to verify it. So you can only make this lie if there are witnesses. And if there's no witnesses, you won't get away with the lie. But Moses, maybe someone will say it happened to them. And now, you and I sitting in this room, 3,313 years, 6 months, 3 weeks and 12 and a half hours after the event, we can ask the question, in the last 3,000 plus years, has anyone made the claim that God spoke to them en masse? Nobody. Interesting. But it doesn't stop there. At this point in the presentation, I'm going to make a complete switch. We're going to change the subject. Why? You're going to see it's completely related. There's a parallel. I'm going to build up a model. And watch the parallel in this model as we switch the subject. What am I going to talk about? What we've established at this point is there's an event in history which the only way you can know as factual is if there are witnesses and if the information is accurately and reliably transmitted. We have on top of this claim a logic that you couldn't make a claim of this magnitude unless it happened because you can catch yourself out by telling a lie. We also have a nevua, a prophecy that claims no one, no religion, no individual will ever say it happened to them. And even if you heard them lie, it's not going to happen. Moses is putting himself on the line. Someone actually once asked me, well, wasn't Moses a magician? I mean, look, splitting the sea and turning the, his scepter into a, into a snake and all those plagues. That was magic. He was a magician. I mean, someone had to teach Dumbledore. Think about it. <laughs> Sorry, it's only for sophisticated audiences. You understand? So... So, if, if, if Moses pulled it off, then maybe he fooled the Jewish people into thinking that they saw and thought they heard God speak to them. 
How do you answer that? Maybe he was a magician. Maybe he pulled it off himself. How do you answer that? The answer is, wait a minute. If Moses could do it, then someone else could do it. And Moses, what does he write after the event? Who was his first hand, right-hand man? Joshua, right? So imagine, let's play devil's advocate for a moment. Let's pretend for a moment that Mo- Moses really pulled, out, pulled off the whole thing. He, he, he had some sort of access to megaphones and uh, electricity. And there on the mountain, he screams down, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. And we all, so gullible, just fell for it. The next morning, he says, hey, Josh, this is, this is amazing. They really thought God spoke to them. You know what? Let's write about it. So in his excitement, Moses starts, you know, he's near the end of the Bible, starts writing about the event. And he says, please ask the following question. I don't care where you are in history, ask the question. From the day man was created, from one end of the heavens to the other, in time, anywhere in time, was there ever an event as great as this? Or did you hear anyone else claim an event like this happened to them? Why would Moses put himself on the line? If he could do it, someone else could do it. Oh, evidently, Moses was not speaking on himself, from his own self. He was given instructions to say, the one who controls history will guarantee no one will ever be able to make this claim again because God's only speaking once to his people. That's it. So now comes the switch. And the switch is the following. Let's look at the question, well, if you and I stood at Sinai and we were there, we would know what to say to our children and tell them what to tell their children. But like you said, once you got it from your mum, would it really be knowledge or would it be belief? It wouldn't be the same. You'd be believing mum, but you wouldn't know because you weren't there. You and I in this room, 3,313 years later, well, we heard it from our parents, our rabbis, the books, but we weren't there. So how do you take an event which was not in our lifetime and guarantee, not on belief, not on hope, not speculation, guarantee, ensure that future generations will not just believe, they'll know that the event really happened. How can you guarantee that? So now comes the switch. How many people in this audience really believe the Holocaust happened? Okay, motion passed. I think there's a pretty much majority vote here. Question, how do you know? How do you know that there really was a Holocaust? Relatives. relatives. You have relatives who were killed. There are, there are artifacts, there are relics. So you've got testimony from actual relatives. What else is evidence, sir? You've got a lot of people walking around with tattoos on their arm. You've got museums. You've got videos and films. Who did those films? The Germans. What else did they do? Kept records. How many records did they keep? Any idea? In the Pentagon, the amount of tonnage of paperwork relating to their meticulous crimes against the Jews alone is over seven tons of paperwork was retrieved after the war by the Allies of the Nazis' own crimes against the Jews. They themselves don't deny that the Holocaust ever happened. So I'm going to ask a different question. How do you know the Holocaust happened? Because of relatives. But how are you going to guarantee your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who were not in the generation of the Holocaust, 
How will you guarantee they know it happened and not just believe it? Will artifacts do it? Will museums do it? Could artifacts and museums be a lie? Could be fabricated. How about videos? Will that do it? Did anyone see Schindler's List? Actual survivors who saw Schindler's List testified themselves that this is the most vivid movie ever made of the Holocaust. It's nowhere close to the reality. Interesting. And where was it filmed? Partially on location, but a lot of it was where? Hollywood. So will videos do it? Or are videos really not evidence in a court of law anymore? So what's going to count as real evidence? Yes, you've got the documentation, but could our children, grandchildren say, well, how do I know? Look, how do I know? Maybe, maybe this was written by the Jews. How do I know that that proves the Holocaust? But we've got witnesses. But what happens after the generation where there's no longer any witnesses alive? Then what? How do you guarantee your children, grandchildren, will know it really happened? So here's a suggestion. Let's create some sort of system, some sort of mechanism that will guarantee our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will really know, not just believe, they'll really know the Holocaust happened to their grandparents, great-grandparents. How will do that? How can we do that? Let's gather together all the survivors of the Holocaust in one place, Jerusalem. Let's bring them there and we'll call it the gathering of Holocaust survivors. And you know what we're going to do? We'll have each one of them write their own experiences and we'll collate them all together into one long document. We'll call it the scroll. Let's call it the scroll. And each survivor will write about their experiences in the ghettos, the cattle trucks, Treblinka, Dachau, Buchenwald, Auschwitz. And we'll put this all together into one large document and then we're going to have a closing date after which we don't allow anyone to come with any new testimony because once we've got the closing date we don't want anyone telling us that oh, my father told me that uh, the Holocaust didn't really happen or it's just an exaggeration and he was there and so he wants to put his two cents. No! Once the closing date is closed no one can add or delete this document. Then we'll create a club out of all the members who are the survivors. And at this club, you know, we'll, we'll create some rules. All clubs have rules. This club will be called the Holocaust Survivors Club. And you know what the rules will be? Rule number one. Let's tattoo on the arm of each child born into the Holocaust Survivors Club the same number that was etched into the skin of the grandmother, grandfather that perished in the camps. You know what we'll do? On the outermost garment of each child born into the Holocaust Survivors Club, we'll sew a Star of David. And that will signify that they are members of this club and they are reminded by this Star of David sewn into their coat, their jacket, that they are not only members, they keep the rules of their club. You know what? Let's have another rule. Let's have a rule where every member in the club reads, let's say, just one short paragraph that we'll select from the scroll. And they read it every morning and every night before they go to sleep. And we'll select a paragraph from the scroll that surmises what the mission of the Holocaust Survivors Club is all about. 
it might sound something like this. Hear, O Israel, remember and never forget the Holocaust happened to us. And you shall remember the Holocaust with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the rules of this scroll that you have committed to practice each day will be on your mind and heart and you shall talk about them with your children when you sit in your home, when you travel outside your house, before you retire at night and when you awaken in the morning. And you shall write these words on strips of parchments to be worn upon your heads and arms each morning before you begin your day. And you will write them on the doorposts of your homes so that you remember the rules of this scroll all the days of your life. And we'll take this strip of paragraph from the scroll, we'll, we'll copy it, and we'll roll it up, and we'll pin it to the doorposts of each home of a Holocaust survivor, whether they live in London, Australia, New York, Paris, wherever they are survivors, we'll put it on the doorposts of their homes, and they'll read it each morning. Another rule, let's study a little bit of the scroll each week, a little bit every day, and you know what? Let's divide the entire scroll into portions so that we'll have weekly portions and by the end of the year we'll finish the entire scroll and then we'll start again. You know what? Let's choose, let's say, Saturday morning to read the scroll in public readings of Holocaust survivors and their children and grandchildren. They'll come together at these club meetings every Saturday morning and we'll read the weekly portion. And you know what else we'll do? We'll go home after reading that portion and we'll have a festive meal. And we'll dress up, we'll have lovely food and you know what? One of the reasons we're going to come together is we want to be reunited as the members of the Holocaust Survivors Club to perpetuate the memory of the Holocaust. And there's another reason. You see, at the mealtime, we'll ask the children questions that they studied during the week about the scroll and we'll tell them an oral transmission. We'll teach them information of stories that are between the lines that are not written in the scroll. Can you write down all the details? No, you couldn't put it all down. So there are stories that the grandparents told the children that passed on to their children of many details that are between the lines and our entire oral transmission. You know what? Let's have another rule. It's very important. Every club has its anniversaries of when it first was established. So let's have a, an anniversary for that special night we gathered together for the first time in Jerusalem and became the Holocaust Survivors Club. You know what? Let's take the part of the scroll which relates to that night, and let's stay up all night, once a year, on the same anniversary as the day we came together for the first time, and we'll study those parts of the scroll. You know what, let's have another... This anniversary is very important. Very, very important. When we were redeemed from the slavery of the camps, let's have a seven-day festival, where the first night of that festival... All members of the Holocaust Survivors Club will come together. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to remember the time that the Allies saved us from the camp. Let's have a seven-day festival where the first night of that festival, all members of the Holocaust Survivors Club will come together. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to remember the time that the Allies saved us from the camps. So, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll take potato peel and we'll dip it in puddle water and we'll hold it up and we'll say, you know what, this is the food of affliction that our ancestors ate when they were in the camps. 
And if it weren't for the allies who saved us from the camps and liberated us, we'd still be there or be completely <coughs> destroyed. And we'll eat this food for seven days to remind ourselves of what it was like. And you all do on that night, that first night of this special festival, we'll have parents and grandparents at the same table relating the stories of what went on when they were in the camps. You know what, let's have a third festival. This is probably one of the most painful and least recognized times in Jewish Holocaust history. Between 1948, sorry, 1945 to 1948. Just because the war was finished and the Allies had liberated the camps did not suddenly mean that the Jews were free to go home. Most had no home to go back to. Stateless. No citizenship. No papers. And for the next three years, they were going from one town to the next, one visa office to the next in the capitals of European countries, trying to get entry into the Western world, Australia, England, America. They were wandering from country to country until in 1948, the establishment of the State of Israel enabled many to move to Palestine, to Israel. But those years of wandering were very painful and difficult. And we're going to commemorate that period of time before we re-entered the promised land of Israel by spending seven days camping out in the backyard in tents to remember the temporary dwelling, the fact that we, we live temporarily in different places throughout our wanderings in Eastern Europe until we were given entry visas into England, America, etc. You know what? There's another rule we have to have. What happens if someone wants to become a member of our club? Someone outside of the club. So how are we going to do it? How does uh, someone outside of the club get entry? How do they apply? What are you going to do? What are you going to tell them? So here's the answer. Are you nuts? <laughs> what do you want to keep all these rules for? Your parents weren't there. Your grandparents weren't in the Holocaust. Why would you want to join our club? It's only really for survivors and their children, grandchildren. If you demonstrate after we've already said, you know, it doesn't make sense why you'd want to join, if they demonstrate that they really want to commit to the rules, then we'll welcome them in. But essentially, we're not proving our case by numbers. That's never been our argument. Our argument is Moses' prophecy. The logic that there was an event and you can't refute it. But let's look. Here we've got all these rules for mechanisms that would help ensure that the Holocaust would not be forgotten. Now let me ask you a question. If someone were to claim that the Holocaust was a lie, or at least an exaggeration, would you expect them to surface in the same generation of the survivors, in the face of the survivors, tell them it didn't happen? Or would they wait to at least till there are no longer any survivors and then tell us it's a lie, an exaggeration? And if you were to hear such a claim, would you expect to hear it from the elite of society, academics, intellectuals, intelligent, well-educated? Or you'd hear it from low-class people who have got an axe to grind, people who feel that they're oppressed. Where would you expect to hear such claims? 
And yet, what's the reality? In the face of the survivors, people have stood up and said, the Holocaust never happened, or it was an exaggeration. Austin J. App, former associate professor of English at LaSalle College, Philadelphia, is the author of numerous neo-Nazi pamphlets. One, for example, called, Did Six Million Really Die? The Truth at Last. Arthur Butts, professor of engineering at Northwestern University, and author of The Hoax of the 20th Century, denying the death camps and extermination of millions of Jews, he claims that the fabrication of the Holocaust was made by Jews seeking to enlist support for Israel by appealing to popular guilt feelings. Robert Forreston holds a PhD from the Sorbonne in Paris, was dismissed for his position as professor of the Lyon University, for revisionist views and convicted by a French court for defaming the victims of the Holocaust. He claims that the Nazi gas chambers never existed and that the facts about the Holocaust and the number of victims have been grossly exaggerated. The list goes on. Where's their psychology? Where's the intellectual honesty? Where do they honestly expect to be believed in the same generation as survivors that their claim that it didn't happen, or it's at least a lie, that they'd be accepted. Where's them? Where are they coming from? Intellectuals? Educated? And forgive me for quoting their mentor, Adolf Hitler, the Imachimai, who wrote the following in the Bavarian jail, 1924, in his book, Mein Kampf. The receptivity of the great masses is limited, their intelligence is small, but their power of forgetting is enormous. In consequence of these facts, all effective propaganda must be limited to a very few points and must harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want him to understand by your slogan. The magnitude of a lie always contains a certain factor of credibility. People feel fall more easily victim to a big lie than a little one, since they themselves lie in little things. What Hitler, Yemachimoy, is essentially saying is if you tell a lie enough times and it's heard again and again, it's in print again and again, eventually you're going to have a generation who weren't there to deny the real facts and now you've got in print. Some say it did happen, some say it didn't. Yesh omrim v'yesh omrim. Who's to say one's more credible than the other? I'll never forget, in universities in England, 20 years ago, history books in the universities had already been rewritten based on a lot of propaganda and financial influence from the Arabs. That according to some historians, the Holocaust is a lie, or at least an exaggeration. 20 years ago. Interesting. So that's what we're up against. So let's take our mechanism, let's take our club and its rules, and let's see, could it last, could it stand up to the test of those who want to refute the Holocaust? Will our children, grandchildren, still believe on a level of absolute conviction, not just faith? This analogy that I shared with you is not so far-fetched, because in actuality, In Jerusalem, on June 14th to the 18th, in 1981, there really was a gathering of Holocaust survivors. There was a gentleman 
in the audience sitting over here who stood up at this point in one of these presentations, he pulled up his arm, his sleeve and showed his number and said, I was in Auschwitz and I was at this gathering. Peter Melkin, the one who personally accosted Eichmann after the war, he stood up in the audience and said, I was there, I know it happened. Let me quote to you from the chairman of the gathering of Holocaust survivors in Jerusalem, Ernest Michel. My name is Ernest Michel. Auschwitz number 104995. Like many of you, I had a dream that one day, if we live, we would come and stand together. This is a reunion of a special group of people. We want to stand together once more before time runs out. United in freedom as we were in slavery. We want to see in each other's eyes and in the eyes of our children the proof of our survival and the joy that comes from being alive and free. But there's more than that. We survivors want to tell those who try to rewrite history and deny that the Holocaust ever happened. Our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, our nostrils were filled with the acrid fumes from the gas chambers drifting over our camp, day after day, week after week, year after year. These hands have carried more corpses than I care to remember. So don't tell us it never happened. We were there. Towards the end of the quote, I am pleased to announce that they have formed here in Jerusalem a second generation international network whose major purpose will be to carry on the memory of the Holocaust. And in his closing remarks, this was the evening of the future, the transmission of the legacy. They wrote a short scroll called The Legacy. And they wrote a few rules for their, for their legacy. And in six languages, Hebrew, Yiddish, English, French, Ladino and Russian, a survivor read the legacy and a child or grandchild of a survivor received it. And for 45 minutes, 10,000 people sat in perfect silence as an Israeli, an Australian, a New Yorker and another Israeli survivor read in each of the six languages. Elie Wiesel asked at a press conference to give his response to this gathering, made the following comment. The second generation is the most meaningful aspect of our work. Their role, in a way, is more difficult than ours. They are responsible for a world they did not create. They who did not go through the experience must transmit it. Interesting. There was such a gathering. But it dissipated after the war. There was one lady in our audience once who was one of the children of the survivors at that gathering. And she said she joined the chapter that was in New York. Thirteen people turned up. What happened? Dissipated. But what if there really were such rules? What would happen then? How do you guarantee any information will be the same from generation to generation if there's no system, mechanism to guarantee it without a set of rules? Actually, I want to share with you the following. Ben-Gurion. Was Ben-Gurion the first Prime Minister of the State of Israel? Was he known for his deep love and affinity for traditional Judaism? Absolutely not. He was proud of creating the educational system in Israel, minus God. 
And yet, when Ben-Gurion was called upon to speak on the behalf of the Jewish people throughout the world in front of an investigation committee of the Anglo-American Investigation Committee of the United Nations in 1948 to give the most compelling argument why the Jews deserved a homeland of their own. What was the best argument Ben-Gurion could come up with? I'll share with you word for word. About 300 years ago, a ship set sail for the New World and its name was the Mayflower. Its passengers were Englishmen who had become disgusted with their government and their society. They set out in search of some deserted shore to establish a new life for themselves. And they landed in America and they were the first founders of that land and that people. This was an important day in the event of both England and America. And for this reason, to this day, every American child knows of the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, Plymouth Rock and November 25th, Thanksgiving Day. I am, however, very interested in knowing if any Englishman, or American for that matter, is aware of the hour and the day that the pilgrims set sail on the Mayflower. Does any child or even adult know how many pilgrims were there on this historical voyage? What were the names of their families? What did they wear? What did they eat? Where did they get water to drink? And what path did they navigate? And what happened en route? Behold, says Ben-Gurion, it was more than 3,300 years ago that the Jews set out from Egypt. Every Jewish child all over the world, America, Soviet Russia, Yemen, Germany, knows exactly how his ancestors, his ancestors left at dawn on the 15th day of Nisan. What did they wear? And he quotes Exodus 12 verse 11. Their loins were girded, their sandals were on their feet, their staffs were in their hands. They ate matzah and arrived at the Red Sea after a seven-day journey. These children also know the route that their ancestors traveled and what events transpired during their 40-year trek in the wilderness. They ate man and quail. They drank water from the well of Miriam. They arrived at the borders of Jericho and the Promised Land. Sorry, they arrived at the, at the borders of the Promised Land on the banks of the Jordan River facing Jericho. They know the names of their ancestors and can quote them to you from the five books of Moses. Concludes Ben-Gurion. Till this day, Jews the world over eat the same matzah for seven days from the 15th of Nisan each year and they relate the story of the exodus and tribulations that the Jews have suffered from the day they left their land and wandered into exile. And they end by shouting two phrases that children, parents and grandparents have been saying for thousands of years. Now we are slaves. Next year we will be free men. Now we are in exile. Next year will be in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. This is the nature of the Jews. End of quote. Ben-Gurion, not a lover of traditional Judaism, could not find a more compelling argument to persuade the nations of the world that the Jewish people had a right to their homeland other than unbroken transmission. An unbroken transmission from the Exodus, from Sinai, till 1948. Ladies and gentlemen, watch the parallel.
Sinai, an event in history. Witnesses. But how do you know in the future that it really happened? The witnesses are no longer here. The Holocaust. It happened in our parents' lifetime. But we weren't there. Our children, grandchildren will not have been there. How will they know? They won't have met the grandparents who were there. I don't think Ben-Gurion himself knew the full power of his argument. Because imagine the following. Madam, your name is? Your name? Rachel. Rachel, okay, Rachel. Imagine, Rachel, you're sitting on the lap of your grandfather. And it's the first Passover being celebrated in the Promised Land. After the Exodus. And your grandfather sits you on his lap on Leil Seder, the night of the first night of Passover. And says, my dearest Rachel, my special granddaughter, let me tell you, my father was a bricklayer in Egypt. And he broke his back, literally, from trying to fill the quota. And because he failed to fill his quota, I'll never forget, my brother, Chaim, his firstborn, was taken alive and cemented into the walls because my father didn't fulfill his quote. And if that weren't enough, three days later, his only daughter, Miriam, his princess, was kidnapped. And we Jews knew that if a Jewish child was missing, they knew where to go, the palace of Pharaoh. And they admitted my father into the palace to watch his daughter's throat be slit open and provide blood for the bath of Pharaoh. My father died a broken heart, but he promised to me, he said, promise me you will never forget you're a Jew and that we will one day be redeemed from this land to enter the promised land of Israel. And then your grandfather tells you about the events that took place, that he was there, Sinai. And he remembers how your father, Rachel, asked him a question when they were studying the scroll each day that your grandfather didn't know the answer to. So your grandfather went to his teacher, who didn't know the answer. Eventually they went to the tent of Moses. And Moses said, I asked the same question to God when I was asked to write the scroll. And this is the answer God gave me. And now Rachel, let me ask you. Your grandfather, your father, move on. And you become a safta. You become a grandmother. You become a bobby. And you've got your grandchild sitting on your lap. What are you going to tell them? The stories that your grandfather told you. The stories your father told you. And you'll add on that when you were a child, you had a question that your father was stumped by. And you will never forget how your father took you by the hand to the tent of Joshua, the student of Moses, already in the land of Israel. And he answered your question. And each year they would add on the stories that they heard from their parents and grandparents until the Haggadah, the story was finally written that we celebrate every Passover. I don't think Ben-Gurion understood the power of his own argument when he suggested the unbroken chain of transmission. Ladies and gentlemen, put on trial, imagine in your minds, in front of you, a young boy and a young girl. They claim that the Holocaust really happened. They say that they are members of the Holocaust Survivors Club. And the year, let's just pretend, is 500 years in the future from today. Let's just pretend. 
And they're on trial. And they're asked, how do you know there was a holocaust? Young man, what's this number on your arm? He says, this is the same number that my great-great-great-great-grandmother had on her arm when she perished. In the... Young lady, what's this star of David on your outermost garment? This is the same star of David that my great-great-great-great-grandparents wore when they were in the camps, when they were rounded up in the ghettos. It reminds us that we're members of the Holocaust Survivors Club. And that's why I wear this star. And why do you eat this special food on Passover? Why do you keep this night of all learning? Why do you camp out in tents? And they ask them all 613 rules, and they answer each one is related to the Holocaust. How do you know? How do you know, young man? How do you know, young lady? Because my mother lived this way. My father wore the same clothes. My mother and father studied the scroll with us. I remember our grandparents studying the scroll with us every Saturday morning. And they can relate that their grandparents testified to their parents who testified to them. Oh, so you've got witnesses testifying to their children, giving testimony to their children from generation to generation. And it's not just by word of mouth, it's the way they live. And on the other side of the courtroom is a young man, a young woman. And they claim to be survivors of the Jewish people from Sinai. How do you know there really was such an event? You weren't there. And you ask the young man, why are you wearing tzitzit? He says, this reminds me that I'm a member of the Jewish people and that I keep this law. It was given to me at Sinai. The badge reminds me of all my laws. Why do you have circumcision on your body? This is, reminds me of my identity as a Jew. The tattoo on the arm of the survivor. Why do you celebrate Passover? Because I'm reminding myself how God took us out of Egypt. How the Allies liberated us from the camps. Watch the parallel. The children will be questioned on 613 questions and other details. Question. Did this young man and woman, claiming that they are members of the Holocaust Survivors Club of 500 years ago... Is it possible that they made up a story of a hoax that started 500 years ago and a bunch of people came together and said, let's make a lie and perpetuate the lie to our children. Let's make up all these irrational rules, burn numbers into their arms. Let's make up all these crazy rules so that our children will believe the lie. Or you couldn't make a lie of the magnitude of the Holocaust because 20 million people died in the Second World War. Six million of them were Jews and the Nazis, the perpetrators of the crimes, have their own documentation and we've got witnesses besides the artifacts, besides the videos. Could these young couple be the result of a hoax and a lie and they're perpetuating the lie? Could this young couple over here be the result, the product of a lie that started 3,313 years ago or you couldn't start a claim of that magnitude unless it happened because there were witnesses who testified to their children to their children, from generation to generation, until today. Same matzah, same tefillin, same Shabbos, same kosher laws, same laws of family purity, same Yom Tov. It hasn't changed. Interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the court case. You be the jury. These people are on trial. And the verdict is your choice. Thank you for your patience.